I don't know how prayer works. I just know that it works. Dallas Theological Seminary was founded in 1924. Early in its history, the seminary had a legitimate financial need of some $10,000, which at that time was an enormous amount of money. It was Dr. Harry Ironside who stood at the faculty meeting and simply prayed, Lord, we know that you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Just please sell some of those cattle so we can have this need met. In Jesus' name, amen. No sooner than two hours after the faculty meeting, the office of the president gave word that a $10,000 check had just arrived to Dallas Theological Seminary by the U.S. mail. The donor, who had written the check days earlier, was a Texas rancher. There was a note that was attached to the $10,000 check that simply read, this money is from the sale of some of my cattle. I don't know how prayer works. I just know that it works. I am baffled by the notion that our whimsical prayers offered by frail, fickle followers of Jesus, like you and me, somehow have an impact upon the eternal God of the universe. That notion blows my mind. How is it possible that God who can run the universe superbly with or without my prayers has invited me to come and to pray and somehow the prayers that are offered in faith have an impact upon the eternal purposes and plans of God. That somehow God is not toying with us, that somehow he legitimately invites us into his presence and when we pray, it makes a difference in the very heart of God Almighty. That is too much for me. When I began to realize that my knowledge of need is so limited, my understanding of the scope of redemptive history is so localized, all I have at best is just a slice of reality, and yet God, who knows the beginning as certainly as he knows the end, invites me, based upon my perception of the slice of my life, to offer up prayers unto him that somehow make a legitimate difference in the Holy One of the universe. I don't know about you, but that just simply blows my mind. Because this eternal God tells us that the prayers of righteous people are powerful and effective. He says that when you pray, a sick person is made well. When you pray, marriages are mended. When you pray, things change, things happen. When you pray, it caused me to think to myself, what would happen if you stopped praying for someone in your life? How would that negatively affect them? 
the flip side is also true. How would it positively affect someone if you started praying for them? I don't know how prayer works. I just know that it does work. Today we come to the middle of a five-part sermon series entitled Faith, a study in the life of Abraham. It is not by accident that at the heart of this study on faith, we find a lesson on prayer. Let it be known that you cannot be a person of faith without prayer, and you cannot pray without being a person of faith. So with that in mind, I invite you to take a copy of your holy word. Turn to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 18. We'll begin at verse 16 and read through verse 33. Genesis chapter 18, let's begin at verse 16. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence, the public reading of God's holy word. Genesis chapter 18, let's begin at verse 16. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. All the nations on earth will be blessed through him. I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what has been promised to him. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he asked him, what if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Much has happened since last we left Abraham. You may recall last week that 
Abraham had grown frustrated because of the unfulfilled promise of God. The Lord had said, I will make your name great. I will make you into a great nation. Yet Abraham and his wife Sarah remained barren and childless. Abraham decided to take matters into his own hands to help out the Holy One. So he went to God and said, I have selected a servant to be my son. I've already chosen Eliezer of Damascus. I think you'd be pleased with him. He's a great guy. I love him as my boy already. And so I have chosen him and through him, your favor will fall upon me. Like so many of us, Abraham tried to make a decision and then go to God in retrospect, asking for God's blessing upon our decision making. It never works for you. It didn't work for Abraham either. So the Lord gave Abraham an object lesson, took him outside, told him to look up to the heavens, count the stars if you can, for as numerous as the stars, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited unto him as righteousness. This is a mountaintop moment in the life of Abraham. No sooner had one chapter passed that you and I come to Genesis chapter 16, A couple of years had spanned, and still Abraham and Sarah are frustrated. They're frustrated because the promise had not been fulfilled. They've been trying to conceive, unable to have a child. Sarah is now frustrated. And at the beginning of Genesis chapter 16, it's Sarah who has a bright idea. She goes to her darling husband, Abraham, and she says, I think uh, that what you need to do is simply sleep with my servant, Hagar, and maybe she can conceive, and uh, maybe I can build a family through her. Now, this is an audacious request. I mean, this opportunity for adultery should leave all of us just cringing. What I expect Abraham to say, he does not say. The text simply says, Abraham agreed. I think to myself, brother, what is wrong with you? That is not the response I expect to come from the patriarch. For when the patriarch hears uh, this opportunity for adultery, I expect him to say, no, baby, you know I can't do that. You know I only have eyes for you. I can't even fathom the possibility of doing it. No, baby, I can't do that. But Abraham says, okay. I'll take one for the team, (laughs) but I'm not going to like it. (laughs) He goes and he sleeps with Hagar. She conceives, gives birth to a bouncing baby boy. His name, Ishmael. But the Lord is very quick to say that while Ishmael will be blessed, he is not the favored child. For there will come another child from Abraham and Sarah. Can I just give a quick aside? You do realize that Many of the problems, even that we still have today in the Middle East, resides and can be traced back to this decision. Sarah and Hagar hated each other, were jealous of each other. Ishmael was born some 13 years later, 14 years later, Isaac was born. Isaac and Ishmael were at each other's throats all throughout their life. And still to this day, the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac are at each other's throats. It all goes back to this selfish lack of patience, discretion that took place when Sarah said to her husband Abraham, sleep with my servant Hagar. In Genesis chapter 17, it's the Lord who once again reaffirms the covenant to Abraham 
It's in that chapter that he changes their names. No longer is he called Abram, now he's called Abraham. No longer is she called Sarai, now she's called Sarah. You think to yourself, why does God rename them? He renames them because in antiquity, to name something demonstrated dominion over that which was named. So that Adam named all the animals, and whatever he called them, that was their name. And Adam demonstrated dominion over all the created order. Parents, one of your first displays of dominion over the life of your child is that you get to name your child. Your child is not named by the nurse or by the doctor or by anyone else, but you as the parent get to name that child. Why? Because that displays your authority, your dominion over that child. So God displays his dominion over Abraham and Sarah. He says, I've now changed your name. And then he gives Abraham a sign of the covenant. It's circumcision. Abraham is 99 years old when he is circumcised. He circumcises his 13-year-old son, Ishmael. All of the men servants in his household, everyone was set apart, identified as people of God. Because the Lord said, I've made a promise, and if I make a promise, I can keep a promise. You are my people, and I am your God. I've left an indelible impression upon you, for I have circumcised you, and all of your people will be circumcised on the eighth day from here on out. You and I come to Genesis chapter 18. And the very opening line of Genesis 18 says, the Lord appeared to Abraham. There was a holy entourage of three that made their way over the horizon. I can well imagine it was a hot, sweltering Palestinian day. Abraham was sitting outside the tent of his dwelling place. He saw these three strangers. He immediately jumped up and gave them Near Eastern hospitality. He prepared for them a spread of food. It didn't take very long during the meal for him to identify that these guys were not from these parts. They didn't talk like everybody else that surrounded Abraham. A lot of people have tried to wonder who who were the identity of these three men. Many people have given a lot of speculation. Can I just simply uh, suffice it to say this morning that those three men were none other than Jesus the Christ and two angels? Because you know that Jesus is not a creation of God. He is God. He is God personified. He did not just burst on the scene 2,000 years ago in a Bethlehem barn. God has always existed as Father, Son, and Spirit. And whenever we see the personification of God in the Old Testament, I can say it's none other than Jesus the Christ. And he is flanked on his right and on his left by two angels. Because when you and I come to Genesis chapter 19, verse 1, it says that he dispatches those two angels towards Sodom and Gomorrah. In our passage God is not called Jesus, he's simply called Lord, written in all capital letters. Sometime in the meal, the Lord says to Abraham, I'll return this time next year, and when I do, you and Sarah will have a bouncing baby boy. He will be the promised child. Give him the name Isaac. Sarah was somewhere in the distance, and she laughed. She said to herself, oh, Now, now that I'm worn out, now that my husband's old, will you now give me the pleasure? She laughed. She laughed. Abraham must have sighed, but God was sincere. He asked Abraham, why is Sarah laughing? Maybe he was the only one who could hear her laugh. Why is Sarah laughing? Is anything too hard? For the Lord? That's a great question. 
Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too difficult for our God? Is anything too hard? Is anything too impossible? That question is posed in the opening book of the Bible. It is answered consistently all throughout the Bible. One of the best places it's answered is in Luke chapter 1, verse 37, where the angel says to Mother Mary, nothing is impossible with the Lord. Is anything impossible for God? Nothing is impossible with the Lord. Is there any person that's too lost? Nothing is impossible with God. Is there any marriage that's too broken? Nothing is impossible with God. Is there any prognosis that's too bleak? Nothing is impossible with God. Is there any prodigal that's too far gone? Nothing is impossible with God. Is there any skeleton too big in your closet? Nothing is impossible with God. Is there any financial difficulty that's too insurmountable? Nothing is impossible with God. My friend, you may come here this morning and you may be clinging to your faith by your fingernails. You may have a problem, a predicament, a prognosis, and you may think that it's far too big, but the consistent message all throughout the Bible is nothing is impossible for our God. The Lord Jesus Christ says to Abraham, I'll be back this time next year, and you will have produced a bouncing baby boy at the whopping young age of 100, and your wife at the young age of 90, because nothing is impossible with God. This morning, I want you to know that nothing is impossible with the Lord. Jesus was about to get up, about to walk away, and he has a divine conversation, either with himself or with the two angels that were with him. The Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? You know, most of the time we become fixated in this passage by Abraham's ability to haggle with the holy, right? I mean, we become enamored because it seems that Abraham was able to barter with the blessed one. It seems that he was able to talk him down from 50 to 45 to 40, 30, 20, 10. He sounds like uh, an auctioneer, doesn't he? It sounds as if that Abraham had the capacity to change the changeless one. It seems that Abraham had the way to, very, to change the very mind of God. And when we come to this passage, we become fixated on what seems to be Abraham's ability to haggle with the holy. But let it be known that Abraham would have had no working knowledge of this had it not been for the conversation initiated by the Lord. It's the Lord who initiates the conversation. He has the first word. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Had he not made that statement, Abraham would have no clue what was about to happen in Sodom and Gomorrah. This has caused Ken Matthews to write in his commentary on Genesis that revelation is always God's prerogative. Revelation is always God's prerogative. It is God who initiates this thing. It is God who starts this conversation. It is God who gives some insider information to the patriarch named Abraham. It is God who begins the conversation, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Apparently he decides to go ahead and give Abraham this insider information. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great. The sin, he says, is so grievous. 
that it has reached my ears. I am here to go down and see firsthand if the outcry is as bad as what has been lifted up to me. If not, I'll know. That statement has brought some confusion. Some people have said, well, if that's the Lord, then the Lord's not even omniscient. He doesn't even know what the sin is. He's got to go down and see it for himself. That is not what God is saying. God is not communicating a lack of knowledge. What God is communicating is swift justice. I will go down there, the Lord says, and I will take care of it swiftly. You and I think that the justice of God oftentimes is delayed. It is never delayed. It is right on time. God knows what he's doing, when he's doing, where he's doing it, and God shows up at just the right moment, and God is a righteous judge who delivers justice swiftly. So he says to Abraham, I will go down there, and I'm going to take care of it. I will destroy the city. He dispatches the two angels. God tells us why he gives Abraham that information. In verses 18 and following, we are told that the reason God gave the information is because God recalled the promise that he made. Sounds very reminiscent of what we read in Genesis chapter 12. I will make you into a great nation. You will be a father of of a great nation. You will bless the world. And then he continues and says, I have chosen him. Not only does he remember the promise, but he also remembers and recalls the relationship that he has with Abraham. For the word chosen means I have have known you. To choose is to know. And the Lord says, I know you. And because of that knowledge, you are a friend of God. This is very reminiscent of what Jesus will say in John chapter 15 when he says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. A servant has no idea what the master's doing, but friends are told everything. And I call you a friend. In multiple places in the Old Testament and the New, Abraham is called a friend of God. The reason Jesus gives Abraham this knowledge is because the Lord remembers the promise that's been made to Abraham. He also recalls the relationship, the friendship that Abraham has with the Lord. So he gives him this information. He dispatches the angels. The angels are moving towards Sodom to do their divine task. The Lord stays with Abraham. The Lord stays there not for the Lord's sake, but for Abraham's sake. Abraham approaches the Lord. The word approach means to draw near. The reason he can draw near is because that relationship that exists between the Lord and Abraham. So Abraham, based on that relationship, draws near to God. And he asks a great theological question. He asks this in a conversation. You and I would call it prayer, for prayer is simply talking to God. And in this prayer talk, Abraham communicates to the Lord and asks the question, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? That's a great theological question. Because Abraham knows that God does not treat all people the same. God divides all of humanity in one of two categories. You and I divide people based on age and gender based on uh, race, based on socioeconomic background, based on political persuasion, based on education level, based on the teams that we root for on Saturday. I mean, we base each other's criteria on a host of things. The Lord says, listen, all people can be described as either righteous or wicked. That's it. Now, the Bible uses other terms to describe this righteousness and describe this wickedness. It says that some people are children of the light, others are children of darkness. Some people are sheep, some people are goats, some people are wheat, some people are tares. 
Some people are in Christ. Some people are out of Christ. Some people walk through the narrow gate on the narrow road that leads to eternal life. Some people walk through the broad gate on the broad road that leads to eternal destruction. All of those are synonyms. They all describe how people are either righteous or wicked. Abraham, who's a good theologian, he understands that God does not treat all people the same. He blesses the righteous and he disciplines or curses the wicked. So we ask a great question. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He's working off the understanding and the assumption that not everybody in Sodom is wicked. It can't be made up of all wicked people. Certainly it's not all righteous people, but there can't be all wicked people. After all, Abraham knows that his nephew Lot lives in and around Sodom. You remember when there was that family feud between the shepherds of Lot and the herdsmen of Abraham and they got into a fight and Abraham said to his little nephew, he said, listen, you go in whatever direction you want to go and I'll go in the opposite direction because there's plenty of land for us. And Lot went in the direction of the plush land, which was near Sodom. Abraham knows that Sodom is, Abraham knows that Lot is there in Sodom. It's in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, where the apostle Peter says that Lot was a righteous man. So Lot's a righteous man. Abraham knows that Lot lives there. And so certainly, will God sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He's calling into question the tension between God's justice and God's mercy. There is always that tension all throughout the scripture. Because if God sweeps away the entire city, both righteous and wicked, then the mercy of God is truly called into question. But if God lets it stand, if God does nothing with Sodom, if God allows Sodom and Gomorrah to stay and does nothing with the guilty and lets the guilty go away scot-free, then the justice of God is truly debated. So Abraham knows what he's doing. He knows what he's saying. He's saying, Lord, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked because you are not only a just God, but you're a merciful God. So how will you handle this? If there are 50 righteous people, will you spare the whole city? Only 50? If there are 50 righteous people, will you spare the whole city? Nobody knows where Abraham got that number 50. He truly pulled it out of the air. There's nothing holy about the number 50. He just pulls it out of the air. I think what he does is he knows that Lot and his family have been living in or near Sodom for the better part of 15 years. And I think he probably thinks to himself, how many people could Lot and his family witness to in 15 years? What kind of influence could Lot and Mrs. Lot and their two daughters, and now they're of the age that they have two engaged uh, sons-in-law. So those half a dozen people, how many people can half a dozen righteous people influence over 15 years? You would think at least 50, right? I mean, at least 50. I mean, certainly over the last decade and a half, uh, Lot had ministered, influenced, served, won to the Lord, shared the gospel with at least 50 people, right? I mean, let me ask you, over the last 15 years, how many people have you won to the Lord? Uh-oh. Okay. Now I begin to see why Abraham begins to haggle with the holy. 
It finally dawns on him, wait a minute, what if Lot hasn't ministered to 50 people? What if he hasn't won 50 people to the gospel, to, to the Lord? What if he hasn't shared the gospel with 50 people? What if he's been there 15 years and hasn't done anything for the kingdom? Uh-oh. Maybe there won't be 50. Um, what about 45? Five less. Five less. Um, if there are five less people, will you, will you destroy the whole city based on five less people? And the Lord every time says, if there's that number of people, I will spare the city. If there's that number of righteous people, I will spare the city. And Abraham is overwhelmed with the burden and the reality that, uh uh-oh, maybe, maybe God's people have not been so influential. So he goes from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10. And he sounds like a, a good auctioneer, except he's going in reverse order. And every time, The Lord responds to Abraham every time he speaks to the patriarch, every time based on a relationship, he says to him, if there are that many people, I will spare the city. He finally gets to 10. He's got to think to himself, certainly in 15 years, Lot and his family have effectively ministered to 10 people. I mean, they've got six people in their family for crying out loud, just themselves. All they've got to do is reach four people in 15 years. We are really putting the cookies on the bottom shelf, don't you think? I mean, Abraham is saying, what's the least amount we can do to still be spared? 10? This is really despicable, church, right? I mean, this is, hor- this is the patriarch for crying out loud. What about 10? And the Lord says, yes. If there are 10 righteous persons in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, I will spare it. I want you to notice that at no point did Abraham have to somehow twist the very arm of God into being compassionate. It's in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11 where the Lord speaks, identifies himself as a sovereign one who says, I do not delight in the death of the wicked, but that they should turn from their wicked ways and live. This is the heartbeat of God. God does not delight in the destruction of people. God is not an evil ogre who sits in the heavens and knocks people off one by one by one. He does not delight in the destruction of humanity. He does not delight even in the death of the wicked, but he wants them to repent of sin and live forever. Oh, my friend, if you're here today and if you're not righteous, which means if you've not accepted the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ that you've been declared innocent in God's sight because Jesus took your debt and was nailed to the cross and and he gives you faith which not only removes your debt but credits you as having his righteousness. If you're not in Christ, if you're not a child of light, if you're not a righteous individual then the Lord says you're wicked and oh my friend, the only way that wicked become righteous is by faith in the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So today can be the day of your salvation. Today can be the moment when you go from wickedness to righteousness. Today can be the moment when you say unto the Lord, I believe in what Christ has done for me because today can be an opportunity for you to respond. The Lord says, I want to be as patient as I possibly can, but I'm not a pushover. Everybody knew what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't know yet. All we know is that the sin is grievous. 
All we know is that the sin is vile. All we know, even as early as Genesis 13, 13, is that the men of Sodom were wicked. We don't know exactly what that looks like. We will know what it looks like. We'll know what it looks like in vile, vivid color. We'll know what it looks like. But up until now, all we know is that they are wicked. They are vile. They're doing something that is despicable in the sight of God. And God has to deal with it. He wants to be patient with them, but he's not a pushover. You cannot pull the wool over the eyes of God. You can't do it. You think you're getting away with something, but you can't get away with anything. God is the all-seeing eye. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He's all-powerful. He knows all things. So God says, I'm patient with you. I give you another opportunity. So Abraham talks God into this If there's 10, will you spare the city? You and I come to verses 32 and 33, the very end of the passage. It says, when the Lord had finished talking to Abraham, he left. And Abraham returned home. That's an interesting way of putting it, isn't it? I thought Abraham was dictating the conversation. I thought Abraham was driving the bus. I thought Abraham was having the conversation and and speaking to the Lord about this or that, or have you thought about this, have you thought about that? I thought Abraham was driving the conversation. You get to the end of the passage, when the Lord had finished talking to Abraham. It seems as if Moses, who's the author of the text, says that our God gets the first word and the last word. Our God gets the first word and the last word. When the Lord had finished talking to Abraham, the Lord left. And Abraham returned home. What do you do with a passage like this? How do you process it? How do you you walk away? What what is the takeaway from a a passage like this? Is the takeaway that God just likes to toy with his children? No. Is the takeaway that you somehow have power over the Lord that you can haggle the holy, you can barter with the blessed one? No. Well, if it's not either one of those, then what's the point? Why why is this in here? Well, this passage tells us a lot about God and something about us. I've I've tried to summarize the statement, summarize the story in one statement. I need to go ahead and tell you that the statement's kind of long. I really tried to whittle it down as best I could, but I... I couldn't get it any shorter. So for those of you who take notes, I'm really sorry. I'll try to speak really slowly. Because I think this is the takeaway from the story. The takeaway in the one pregnant sentence is this. That our sovereign God, who always gets the first word and the last word, invites us, because of our relationship with him, to pray. Because he is grounded by grace and guided by his promises. I think that's the point of the story. You say, I, I'm, I'm still stuck on our sovereign God. What'd you say? I think that the point of the passage is that our sovereign God, which means he's in control of all things. At some level, he's the changeless one. He gets the first word and the last word. The implication is he's directing the whole orchestra all throughout. He is the sovereign God of the universe. He gets the first word and the last word. Yet, because of his 
relationship with us, he invites us to pray. He invites us to pray. He, he invites us to come in and to talk to him. And we can pray. We can pray for ourselves. We can pray for others. We can pray for people we know. We can pray for people we don't know. We are stirred to pray because we know that he is grounded by grace. He is guided by his promises. He will not do anything contrary to his word. He will not do anything that is in contradiction to the promises that he's given us. And it's his promises and his demonstration of grace that stirs up inside of us a desire to pray and to talk to God. Did you see how Abraham prayed? He wasn't arrogant. He wasn't proud. In fact, he was very humble. He goes to the Lord and says, I know that I am nothing. I am dust and ashes. I have no leg to stand on. I have no merit that deserves your attention. I can't do anything where I am supposed to stand in front of you. Uh, please don't be angry with me, he says on a couple of occasions. Please don't be angry with me. Please don't be angry with me. But please, can I talk to you just a little bit longer? And every time the Lord, who is grounded in grace and guided by his promises, says, yes, yes, I want you to talk to me a little bit more. Talk to me a little bit more. What's on your heart? What's on your mind? And Abraham goes with all humility humility. Is that how you pray? Far too many times we give God an ultimatum, don't we? God, you need to do this. God, you need to bless this. God, you need your favor to shine here. God, you need to give me a better job. God, if you give me a better job, I promise I'll tithe. God, if you heal my daughter, I promise I'll live for you. God, if you let my ball team win, I promise I'll be there on Sunday. We make ultimatums with the Lord. We approach him as if we have some leg to stand on, some chip to barter. We've got nothing except for the righteousness of Christ. We've got no means to stand before the Lord except for our relationship with God through the accomplished work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So our sovereign God, who always gets the first word and the last word, invites us because of our relationship with him to pray for he is grounded by grace and guided by his promises. So because of who God is and what he's promised, we pray. It stirs us to pray because the word of God says that though I was dead in my sins, God has made me alive in Christ Jesus. That's true, not just for me, that's for anyone who believes God stirs us to pray. The promise of God says that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Oh, my friends, that ought to stir us to pray. The word of God promises that salvation is found in no other name, for there's no other name given to men by which we must be saved except the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That ought to stir us to pray. Oh, my friends, Jesus has told us that the only way we get from here to there, the only way we get into eternal life is to go through the narrow gate on the narrow road. And we know a lot of people that are traveling on the broad way on, on, through the broad gate, and that ought to stir us unto prayer. We know that we have problems. We know we have predicaments. We know we have family squabbles. We know we have difficulties and challenges. We know we have struggles and we have habits. We know we have those things. But those things ought to drive us to pray because we remember the very promises of God Almighty. Because we pray, we know that the one we pray to 
is grounded by grace and guided by his promises. So we pray. When Abraham walked away, what did he think? Did he think, I got you. I did it. I defeated the Holy One. I talked him down. I won. Did he think that? No. He walked away and he said, I was able to talk to the Holy God of the universe. He invited me into his presence. He wanted to know what was on my mind and my heart. What a great God. How do you walk away from this passage? You walk away saying, what a great God. Because our sovereign God, who gets the first word and the last word, invites you, because of your relationship with him, to come and pray. Because he is grounded by his grace and guided by his promises. This morning, there may be somebody here who needs to pray for the very first time. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. There may be somebody here who needs to pray for the thousandth time about the same thing. You need help. You need healing. You need restoration and reconciliation. This morning, I want you to know the altar's open. As the Spirit of God leads, you respond. And church, today, simply let us pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. We pray your blessing upon our obedience. Thank you for inviting us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.